0: Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please, contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm on the phone today with Eugenia Bone. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Denver Post, Saveur, Food and Wine, and the National Lampoon, amongst other pu- publications. She is the author of Mycophilia, hailed by the New York Times as a delicious, surprising and dizzyingly informative book and of well-preserved recipes and techniques for putting up small batches of seasonal foods. She lives in New York City and Colorado and presently I'm holding in my hands her latest book called The Kitchen Ecosystem Integrating Recipes to Create Delicious Meals. And her other book I have been looking up is called, looking at, I mean, is called Mycophilia, Revelations from the Weird World of Mushrooms. So, Eugenia, how did you become friends, passionate friends with mushrooms?
1: Uh, well, um, I came at mushrooms from the culinary perspective. I'm a long-time food writer and home cook and from a foodie family. Uh, we had always eaten wild mushrooms and collected them. Uh, I come from an Italian family, so rather than do sporty things like sailing, we went foraging for mushrooms.
0: <laughs> yes. So
1: my interest was culinary at first. And I wanted to learn more about identifying mushrooms so that I would be a better forager. But to learn how to identify mushrooms, you need to learn something about the way they live, their ecosystems, the trees that they associate with. And it was through that process that I became fascinated with the mycology in general. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, what is the difference between mycology and mycophilia?
1: Well, mycology is the study of fungi, which is the organism that produces mushrooms as a fruiting body. And mycophilia is a, um, I think it's a word, uh, it's been used in the mycological cir- cir- circles for a very long time. It, myco means fungus, so that's from the Greek, fungus, and philia means, from the Greek, loving. So mycophilia means fungus loving. Mycophiliac would be a fungus lover. Um, It sounds (laughs)
0: naughtier than it is. Well, it sounds deliciously naughty, I have to say.
1: Well, that's the
0: truth. So, Eugenia, tell us about, tell us a bedtime story about the relationship between humans and mushrooms.
1: Well... It depending on where you're coming from. The bedtime story is either one of um, comfort and joy um, or um, shamanistic adventure or a horror story. Uh-huh. Different cultures um, have different relationships with mushrooms. So in places like Italy, France, Russia, Eastern Europe, uh, there, the, the story about people and mushrooms is a love story. It's about walking in the woods, about the silent hunt, as it's called, um, collecting wild mushrooms for the table, preserving them, and really adoring their flavors um, and using the mushrooms for medicinal purposes. The story that comes out of um, Siberia, for example, is one, and also out of Mexico is one that's connected to shamanistic ritual Mm -hmm. and using mushrooms that are not typically at table but are used for shamanistic purposes to um, either just really get high in some cases Mm -hmm. and in most other cases to experience um, the, I don't know, the eternal, the other side of the... uh, the moon, uh, a, it's for um, prophetic experiences, for personal expansion, um, a bonding in a tribe, all the things that uh, shamanistic ritual um, is classically uh, involved in. The mushroom would um, expedite, I guess, different mushrooms, different cultures. So there's some mushrooms that are as the um species are uh, typical in Central America, and the um, Amanita muscaria, the red mushroom with the white dots, that is the mushroom that you, is eaten by shamans in the Siberian uh, and uh, eastern uh, Russian regions. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the horror story yes. comes out of um, England and and a great and to a great extent the USA where um, fears of mushroom poisoning dominate our relationship with mushrooms, which is, of course, um, le- highly legitimate on one hand, since there are, there are a couple of species that are gregarious. They grow all over the United States and England, and if you eat them, they will decompose your liver or kidneys. Um, but that's only a few out of many that are delicious or um, just simply unknown as to their effects right
0: right so do we need uh, do we need good guidance and uh, an instruction to be able to find uh, the right mushrooms for culinary or psychedelic purposes
1: well yes I mean if um It would be the foolish person who would go into the woods and say, here are red berries, and I know that currants are red, therefore this (laughs) must be a (laughs) currant. You know, the same thing goes with mushrooms. Here uh, is a blue staining mushroom. Psilocybe mushrooms are blue staining, therefore this must be a psilocybe (laughs) mushroom. And then you end up, you know, spending the night in the bathroom. (laughs) So... Uh, of course, identification is key to any wild harvesting, um, and most particularly, well, any wild, har- uh, wild harvesting because there are plenty of plants uh, that are poisonous to human beings. So whether it's plants or mushrooms, you need to know what you're picking and be absolutely positive that what you're eating is what indeed you, are, or you think it is. Um, and there are numerous ways to get to that point. I tend to believe that the best way to learn how to identify mushrooms is with someone else who is who you trust and know is knowledgeable. For example, join a local mycological society, go on the walks, and uh, the scientists uh, who are present will identify the mushrooms. And why that's important is because if you see the mushroom in its habitat, it's much easier to imagine it or to, or to um, extrapolate on uh, old uh, specimens or younger specimens or specimens that have gotten somehow bungled up by uh, twigs and sticks versus a picture, which is like a snapshot in time and hardly represents what you're going to see out in the wild.
0: I was intrigued that you said in your book there are many species of mushrooms in New York City. New York City?
1: Yes, yes. Well, I'm the president of the New York Mycological Society, and what what our group does is hunt the parks in New York City. So that includes not just Manhattan, but also the Bronx, and Brooklyn, and Staten Island, and Queens. Um, And It's true we don't have a lot of territory that we hunt, but we find a lot of mushrooms. Um, And even in the winter, like we have a hunt going on this uh, weekend, we are not only looking for culinary mushrooms. There's many in our club who are just interested in identifying species that are happy here and tracking how those species change. You know, there's mushrooms that we didn't see this far north um, in uh, in 20 years ago that now we're seeing creep further north. Oh, as
0: global warming. Changes. Mm-hmm. G- global warming, right?
1: Right. So that's an aspect of our club is just identifying. In fact, our lead scientist is Gary Linkoff, who's also known as the Woody Allen of mycology. <laughs> and Gary wrote the um, Audubon Book of Mushrooms. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh-huh. and what what gary's been collecting this winter is sticks that have crusts on them, these fungal crusts and that 's what he's taken home to identify uh, so our group is involved in a whole range of um what constitutes a mushroom, from those that you pick and cook and eat for dinner to those that just um that are really under the radar for most people but yet. Help us understand the diversity of species in our place.
0: So you you say that um, um, mushrooms constitute twenty five percent of the Earth's biomass, or or at least mycelium.
1: Right, the fun,
0: fungi do. Yeah. Fungi. So would you would you explain for our listeners the differences between the words? Uh, mushroom fungi and mycelia of
1: course so a a mushroom is the fruiting body it's like the fruit or the flower of a fungus and a fun and fungi it's fungus plural fungi uh uh, sorry fungus singular fungi plural so fungi come in a lot of different forms i mean there's at least 1.5 million species um probably many many more and some fungi are really tiny, single-celled things like yeasts, um, and then others uh, produce mushrooms. These are these uh, uh, these fungi grow in a different way than a yeast. So a yeast is one cell, and it grows by division. It kind of pops off little baby yeasts off its sides. Whereas a um, the fungus that produces the type of fungi that produce mushrooms. What, the way they grow is in these long filaments, one cell, um, one cell thick, like uh, ten times thinner than a human hair. And these long filaments, as they grow, they branch and rebranch, cre- growing in an ever widening three dimensions, if possible. The fungi grow, lives in its food, and as it consumes its food, it, c- it, it will continue to grow. And this mass of fungal threads is collectively called a mycelium. Mm. Mm. So a mycelia are everywhere. They're, these fungal threads, which are um, <clears throat> growing, they're, they're absolutely uh, uh, they're, they're too small to see, unless there's a huge mass of them. For example, if you kick open a rotten log and you see all that white cotton candy yes. stuff, that's mycelia. Um, that's been, that is, that's eating the log. It's a type of fungus called a saprophyte that lives on dead and dying things. And then there's, so the way we describe, uh, fungi is based on what they eat, just like carnivores Mm -hmm. and herbivores. And then fungi, they break down, they, they break down, uh, into, to a few different groups. They are either saprophytes, which means that they decompose organic matter, so like a mold is a a saprophytic fungi, Uh and so is the fungus that produces uh, oyster mushrooms, which we love to eat. Yes, yes. So what they do is they eat all this dead and dying stuff, uh, mainly uh, plant matter, and if it weren't for saprophytic fungi, we'd all be buried under miles of plant debris and then there's the kind of fungi that live in association with plants, um, and they're called, um, they're a mutualists. so they have a symbiotic relationship with trees. And so our favorite mushrooms, like uh, porcini and chanterelles and truffles, the, uh, the mycelium lives on and in the roots of certain types of trees. So that's why we only get those mushrooms wild, because you'd have to plant an orchard in order to um, produce a porcini mushroom since it needs its tree host in Uh order to live. And then there's others. There's parasites, particularly uh, fungi that are parasites of insects. And there's endophytes, fungi that live between the cells of all green plants, all green plants, and always have. Very interesting Uh phenomena. Uh So uh,
0: it's what you say. Everything that lives is plural, and particularly mushrooms are all about relationship.
1: Yes. Well, they have to eat something, um, and the relationship with what they eat is either one that where it's a give and take, or it could be parasitic, where as the fungus is um, taken out its host. You know, it's. And what's so ironic, of course, is that we put our we we try to make these designations like um, this is a parasite and that's a mutualist in the relationship the critter has with other organisms. But these are boundary lines. These are definitions that we've created, and nature just does not color in the lines.
0: Yes, exactly. So, so there's
1: a lot of crossover where you can have a fungus that lives in a in a benign mutualistic relationship with a tree and then something kind of goes wrong with the tree that the, or something happens to the tree that the fungus doesn't like and then all of a sudden it becomes a predator. It's sort of like a cow suddenly becoming, you a know, wolf. going from eating grass to eating rabbits. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's fascinating because in the, in the same way that you study a, ecosystems, you probably study adaptability in ecosystems.
1: Yes, because of course, the, a system is only as healthy as its uh, diversity. You know that defines health is diversity, and that diversity is over time more and more interdependent. So when we say that there's that 25% of the Earth's biomass is fungi, this is fungi that is connected to all these other mm-hmm. organisms. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a wonderful notion that there really are no borderlines between um, many species that ultimately everything is connected. It's, imagine, it's like the six degrees of separation, separation. Uh, taken to a biologic level, to a planetary level even.
0: Well, how has it changed the way you look at yourself and, and other human beings to be studying mushrooms?
1: Well, and it was the study of, and I was just getting into biology. I'll tell you that's the bottom line. And I, I, I wish it weren't such a difficult subject to learn, because um, what's happening in biology is so fascinating. Um, For example, I got interested in fungi, and then in all aspects of its of mycology, right? But then one aspect that was very curious was wanted to know about the fungi that live on and in me
0: yes lynn margulis
1: right the role of yeasts and you know the fungi you know there's all these pulmonary fungi and all of these derma uh, you know fungi in your skin and i was like whoa what are they doing there and it was kind of hard to figure out because what's happening right now with the microbiome project the human microbiome project is there's lots of effort going into trying to figure out the bacteria that live on and in us which is a much much Larger number of of species than uh, fungi um, and I think fungi are just going to have to wait their turn I see. <laughs> because you have to what, in order to, to like figure out what these little minuscule critters are they they can 't be just selected and then grown out on in a petri dish, you know they die outside their environment. The fungi that live in your lungs and you have like resident fungi in your lungs if um, uh, if you take them out of your lungs, if, they are, if you take a little uh, specimen out of your lungs, it dies.
0: Hmm.
1: It can only live in your lungs. So how do you identify these species? Well, that's all DNA work. So it's not that sexy uh, process, but the end results are blowing me away, and I think blowing a lot of people away, certainly in terms of the human-bacterial relationship. You know, this... There's this very famous um, uh, 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 quote by, uh, by um, uh, an ecologist who said, "Who was asked, you know, what if all if if you were gone and all that was left was uh, what would be yeah. left if yeah. what you consider yeah. you were were gone, and what would be left would the, the would be this this ghostly image of you, which is all the bacteria that cover every." square inch of your body and then these big bags of bacteria where your bowels are and so on. So there's more to us, there's a lot more to us than what, you know, than how we usually see us. In fact, I wonder if a human really isn't, it. I wonder if what's really me isn't just my character because the rest is an ecosystem.
0: Wow. And what is character?
1: Well, that you're going to have That's, to get a philosopher on yeah. the show for. <laughs> not, not somebody who writes recipes all day. <laughs> okay,
0: let's go back to cooking. <laughs> so, let's talk about uh, the, for instance, the. Um, well, you did a, a workshop with Paul Stamets. But I'm more interested in your your views about the medicinal purposes of mushrooms
1: well there's a, a, lot, a lot most it's mostly unknown. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal uh, stuff out there that is persuasive, but you're not going to be able to get a doctor to um, prescribe mushrooms for you the The problem the problems are kind of deep and complex. There's people who will say that the nature of our pharmaceutical developments is going to get in the way of uh, mushrooms having a certain mushrooms having a fair chance at um, Mm R&D and that may very well be true. Um, I uh, uh, there's People will cherry pick um, medicines out of Chinese, out of the traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia and apply them to a problem. And that really doesn't make sense. You know, the the Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, which uses mushrooms frequently, um, is part of a whole approach to medicine, which is uh, keeping you well. That's yes. what that's about. It's about keeping you well and using food to, and, uh, and acupuncture and massage, all these different mm-hmm. techniques to do that, to keep you well. So in the West, what we do is we kill disease. It's a different approach. Um, not without its merits, but that's what we do. So if you have a disease, to just to say, I'm going to take this mushroom, which has been used to... Uh, to help uh, keep people well who have uh, liver problems in China, I'm going to use that to treat my hepatitis. You know, it's not the same. <laughs> They're no. not parallel. It, you know, it's not parallel. You can't really the or rather, they are parallel, but not meeting the two ideologies. Right. So you can't really just transfer um, traditional Chinese medicine practices to the uh, to attacking. Uh, or curing specific disease. That said, people who develop protocols of their own um, using mushrooms speak very highly of the results. For example, the use of chaga as a um, uh, as a method to keep one's immune system um, primed. It's, I think it's supposed to stimulate your T-cell production so that you're always pumping these killer cells. And as you bump into things that you shouldn't have in your body, mm-hmm. they do their job. Um, and there are protocols used in other countries that uh, haven't met FDA requirements here, again, for whatever reason. I don't know, maybe it's a conspiracy. I'm not against that kind of thought. <laughs> right. um, but uh, like in China, Japan, maybe not China, but Japan, South yeah. uh, Korea, and Russia. Um, extracts of shiitake are used as um, uh, as co medications with uh, chemotherapy. Um, it's a uh, the the idea being that when you take the, the when you're doing chemotherapy, you're you really suppress your immune system, right? You're killing all this stuff right. in your body, and the, the shiitake extracts. Uh, there's two different ones that are used. Um, they help uh, buoy uh, buoy your um, Immune system, so that you have a little bit of better chance of not getting uh, a secondary infection, which, if you have, you're going through chemo, can be pretty devastating.
0: Well, I, I heard uh, the one time I heard Paul Stamets speak, he's he talked about his mother uh, being diagnosed with uh, breast cancer and uh, him giving her. Uh, a mushroom recipe called seps and that uh, he that he knew that that helped her tremendously with recovering from the cancer.
1: Um, yes, he he credits the actually I think it was turkey tail, and, I, and he credits it with curing his or putting his mom's yeah. very advanced cancer into remission,
0: yeah.
1: um, which is you know wonderful for the Stamets family. As far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, great. <laughs> yes. I'm glad for them and glad for her. But um, it's anecdotal, and not everybody's cancer is the same. And, uh, and I'm glad it worked for her, but there's absolutely no, you know, yes. maybe it'll work for you. Yes. I wouldn't say don't try it. I mean, that's not my place to do. But
0: right, it's right.
1: just, you know, it's, it's like me saying you know, I cured my breast cancer with turmeric. I'm sure you have heard that. I mean that's people yes. I I met a woman who's in our club who said, I, you know, turmeric that's what cured my breast cancer. Well, I'm just happy she cured a breast cancer. Yes,
0: yes. I yes. don't
1: know. Yes. I don't know that it's turmeric or that that's necessarily what I would take if I had breast
0: cancer. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I mean, I I believe in turmeric for inflammation. But that's another subject altogether. What I'd like to do is Ask you about your experience with the psilocybin mushrooms, Uh, given that um, I learned in your book that there are psilocybin mushrooms that are not psychedelic, and then the bluing mushrooms uh, definitely are.
1: Well, the bluing psilocybe mushrooms are are psychedelic, (laughs) but there's a belief that blues too, and that won't make you trip. Okay, and it just might give you a little diarrhea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, did you see my op-ed in the New York Times about um, psilo- about psilocybin and depression? Oh, I should uh, send that on to you. You know, so this is a subject that's really getting a lot of interest, and it segues nicely into what you were talking about with um, uh, medicinal mushrooms. After being in a, a kind of scientific ghetto for many decades, uh, psilocybin, as well as to a, a degree other psychedelics, are being explored for their medicinal application today
0: yes. by
1: research hospitals. And it's proving, it's showing to be a very interesting and exciting alternative uh, medication or it's almost like a therapy yes. for um, people suffering from a wide range of mental illnesses, from PTSD to um, cluster headaches um, uh, and even depression. So the way the psilocybin works, and then I can tell you my experience. But so the, the psilocybin is present in a wide number, a large number of. Uh, mushrooms in the psilocybe family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are an abu- ubiquitous little saprophyte. They're little decomposers. They grow, you find them on horse poop in fields. And In fact, in the Pacific Northwest, you see people walking around in horse pastures, bent over. They call it the psilocybe stoop, because they're <laughs> looking at this little brown mushroom. Um, the mushroom was used for shamanistic purposes in uh, Central America and was... Um, discovered um, in 1959 or thereabouts um, and made public through Life magazine. In fact, Magic Mushrooms was coined by um, by Life magazine, the the term. Um, And uh, people started getting interested in taking them. And there was a very short period of time when it was being explored for its medicinal values. Um, But then the the mushroom got swept up in the... um, uh And the Nixon administration drug counterculture freak out and so it got scheduled along with lsd and
0: yep.
1: and I think other you know dmt and so on um, <clears throat> with heroin uh, psilocybin it's itself with psilocybin is the 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 um active component of mm-hmm. the psilocybin mushroom psilocybin itself is not dangerous. What's dangerous is how you may behave on it. So, you won't die from eating uh, magic mushrooms, but you may if you take off all your clothes and jump up and down on the hood of a police car. (laughs) So that's the difference. You know, when we talk about a psilocybin death, what are we really talking about? It's not from a heart attack, from a a, a tripping experience. from walking into traffic because you think the car's can't hit you.
0: Yeah. And that exactly. kind of
1: thing. Yeah. So, the way the magic mushroom works is when you, the, the blue stain, what it really, so psilocybin is this chemical that um, is in the magic mushroom. When you eat it, whether it's dried or you're cooking in an omelet or make a tea, it, metabolize, it metabolizes in your body into something called psilocin. Mm-hmm. And psilocin has a very, very similar, similar chemical structure to serotonin. As a result, psilocin is able to activate serotonin receptors in your brain. Um, and what's so, uh, um, what's so interesting about this phenomena is that, well, it's like one. Um, author Andy Lecter said in a terrific book called Shroom years ago, he said taking a psilocybin is a little bit like putting alien software into your computer and it works, just not the way you expect it.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: So you, when you take the, um, uh, the psilocybin and metabolize the psilocybin, it crosses the blood barrier because your, you know, your brain thinks it's serotonin activates those receptors, and depending on how much of the drug is in your body, you can have a range of experiences. The experiences usually last about four hours, not including a kind of building up and a kind of letting go time in the beginning and the end. So if you have a very mild dose, maybe you'll just feel kind of blissful um, and at peace, uh, laughter, that kind of thing, giggling, mm-hmm. uh, a little stronger dose, and you will um, experience uh, all kinds of sensory um, uh, manipulations. You know, you'll see things, you'll hear things that you don't normally hear, and, and you'll see things you don't normally see, and you'll even have these synesthetic experiences where you'll see smells. Um and you'll hear sights. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, exciting and interesting and, and uh, you know, beautiful if all is, if you're not uptight and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and feeling negative <laughs> for some reason. You know, maybe you're in a bad place. Maybe mm-hmm. you're like, stuck in traffic. wouldn't be a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, a little stronger dose, or quite a bit stronger dose, And you can have what's called an enthogenic experience, which is leaving your body, um, really getting a perspective of the world in a much, much bigger way. This hasn't happened to me, um, but people uh, talk about um, having experiences about their role on Earth and coming to terms with the um, universal plight of us all being mm-hmm. able to sort of see their own role in the circle of life. And it's very comforting to people who are in an end-of-life mm-hmm. state, you know, and mm-hmm. then depressed. They take the mushroom, these anthogenic doses of the mushroom, and they will, or the psilocybin, because it's in therapy uses only the synthetic that's used. Right. And... uh they feel less like a why me and more a part of the cycle of life and more at peace with it, And so, which is wonderful for them and wonderful for their families. Um, but for me, my experiences have been limited more. I've had some personal epiphanies. They're um, small and probably would be boring to most readers, except for one that I can think of that is more general. Um, mm-hmm. So after a, a couple of hours of um, being able to see the, the air uh, quiver behind a bee as it flew by mm. and seeing, being able to see trees respire, which really gave me a sense that there was so much more life around me than I noticed most of the time. And that in itself is humbling. Yeah. But as I, as I was coming down, I decided to take a bath. And that's a time when I think middle-aged women like me can be pretty self-critical. And I was actually worried that I would give myself a bad trip (laughs) and look at my waistline and and that would just send me over the deep end. Uh, But on the contrary, what happened when I was in the tub is I had this realization that my body was like a ship and that was actually the real, that it was taking me through life and that was... Uh, it was my my carrier through this incredible experience called life and and I felt this huge wave of gratitude and I just was able to let go of all this stuff about my aging looks and all that bull yeah. and uh the relief that I felt the, that sort of sense of gratitude and that i really didn 't have to worry so much be so you know self critical about my waistline and all that it was it was a relief that I still feel today, and it's been years.
0: That's wonderful.
1: That's... I think there should be a spa. Yeah, so women, self-compassion. To... <laughs> it would be the self-compassion
0: spa, exactly.
1: Why get any surgery or expensive treatments? Just take the mushroom, and you'll feel better about your body. <laughs> That's
0: perfect, Eugenia. That's. I'm right, a... so just kidding around you know, I think for it's, anybody it's... who might... It's fabulous. I think that's why I feel so good about my face. I mean, uh, similar similar reasons. Uh, the self compassion. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. You know, it's hard. It takes sometimes it can take years of therapy to get to the place where you find your compassion and your sort of sense of peace with things and your bliss. And I've got to tell you, the mushroom can be can be. Some, You know, can be a shortcut to that. Yes, yes. Um, So that's one of the things that the um, researchers are exploring right now. What is it that this this drug can do for us? What is it doing? What are the mechanisms? Under what circumstances?
0: So we can uh, live and die better.
1: Well, I I think so. I mean, but like any drug, you've got to be careful about who's taking it and who you know, and who shouldn't be taking it because. Uh, just like pot can flip a child with a genetic predisposition for schizophrenia Absolutely. into a psychotic yeah. episode. Yeah. So too psychedelics might have that potential and it could be very dangerous. So you know, these are not <laughs> I am advocating more research and that it really we really look at it seriously because they could be great, but let's know let's know when they can hurt too.
0: Good. Good one. Set and setting, as my ex-husband used to say. Long-term,
1: well, yeah, yes, that yes. is key, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, Leary came up with the right—I think—the right formula in terms of set and setting.
1: Yes, set, I think your setting. listeners know what we what you're referring to. Excuse me. Um, so you're referring to the environment of the how the location, yeah, yeah, the and,
0: location and who you're with and you're with and, uh, and how much mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that's really important let's go to food after we've gone to medical spiritual what is your favorite recipe with mushrooms what is your favorite favorite I mean, by all means, I have to say my my favorite, but it's sort of like the grail, because I hardly ever get any, is, is um, white truffle.
1: Well, I love a white truffle, too. There's no question about it. But I think for me, eating is also set and setting, <laughs> so right. um, I don't bother buying white truffles in the United States, I know that there's white truffle dealers who would cringe to hear that, but um, I don't. After four days, the aroma, which is the flavor of a white truffle, just begins to dissipate. Mm -hmm. So if you're not eating a very fresh truffle, it's not going to taste like much of anything.
0: Right, right.
1: So I always recommend if you really want to eat truffles, go to Piedmont in November. And then you'll be able to eat white truffles the way they are meant to be eaten, which is right out of the ground.
0: In the Piemonte?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yes.
1: That's their, I mean, but you also find them in, you know, in, in Umbria, and you can find them in Tuscany, and uh, in Slovenia. Slovenia. And I hear they're moving further north. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I bet you we'll be getting the Italian white truffle in Switzerland in the next <laughs>
0: 20,
1: 20 years. You
0: know. Interesting. You have a, a new book called *The Kitchen Ecosystem*, and um, I um, really love what you say that uh, the kitchen is an ecosystem, and uh, thank how, you. yeah, and how you speak about using everything to transform into food or or recipe enhancers. So if you would talk a little bit about that, it would be wonderful.
1: Yes, I'd love to. So I'm really, like, evangelical about this subject because, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about food waste. You know, in the United States, we waste 50% of the food we grow. Restaurants are terrible food wasters, um, and home cooks are, are food wasters. And if you throw something away and you look in your garbage can and it makes you feel bad, then there's probably uh, a good reason. There's probably a good flavor in that food. So what I try to do with the kitchen ecosystem is to take the values of the 20th century and update them for a 21st century lifestyle because we don't have the time to, to cook all day long and to create stocks um, and use all these byproducts and to um, can massive amounts of foods. But uh, but those ideas is what produces the best flavored food, besides being efficient and thrifty and economical and sustainable. So how do you do it? Well, in the kitchen ecosystem, I am try to illustrate how to, how to do that in uh, small batches, even nano batches. You know what's wrong with making one pint of stock? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's useful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's useful. It's great. Okay. And it's easy to do. Um, and how to fold this into an evening cooking routine, uh, so for every evening, for every dinner that you make, you're also putting something up, so if you buy a pound of tomatoes to make a tomato and watermelon salad, then you maybe buy two to pounds of tomatoes instead and put up, preserve one yes. jar yes. of the tomatoes at the same time, it's just one more burner on the stove, and pint by pint, you build a, pint, a pantry that cuts your cooking time in half. Next, when you pull that jar out of the pantry and out of the cabinet. Mm. And using all of the byproducts, the um, uh, the stuff that people think that they can't eat, like the greens, like carrot tops. You know, carrots were originally cultivated for the greens. Um, and the radish tops. The Using the bones of their fish and poultry uh, and meats for stock. Uh, the stems of mushrooms. Jacques Pepin used to or I think he still does, he keeps a, a um, milk carton, of uh, a milk carton, uh, like the kind, not with the little plastic nozzle, but the kind that opens at the top. Uh-huh. And he just puts in all the tips and ends from his weekly cook or a few days' worth of cooking uh-huh. into that milk carton, and then either when he has bones or not, dumps it in a soup pot, covers it water with water, and makes stock. He makes a stock, a flavored stock that represents his cooking over the course of a few days which mm. I love. It's very individual. Mm. This is non-recipe cooking in a way. It's ultimately about expressing what it is you like to cook and what you care about, what your region produces and what kind of money you have to spend, what your ethics are and what your oh. ethnicity is. That's so so I tried it to wrap all that up together in this book um, and provide it with uh, over 400 recipes.
0: Again, it's uh, is as you say in uh, in the Mycophilia book, I is a community. So you're making stock, for instance, with the community of things that you've cooked in the last, uh, in, at your dinners and lunches.
1: Exactly. That's a really great way to look at it. Actually, Joanne, that's very intuitive of you. And I think that integration is my thing. That, that's my theme. That's what yes. makes me so excited. This connectedness, whether you find it by doing the magic mushroom and realizing that you're connected to everything else on Earth or whether you do it with science and you learn about how there's fungi, fungal uh, mycelium threads running through everything made of wood in your house yes. or whether it's a by stock seeing pot how one meal is connected
0: to the next a stock pot. whether it's in the stock pot
1: exactly it's a metaphor isn't it
0: i love that i love yeah. that it's uh, it's absolutely changed my way of seeing because for instance i don't compost and so i felt i felt sh- shame about Throwing half the asparagus in the or one third of the asparagus in the in 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 the in the trash, you know, yeah, but now you've changed my life. I don't have to feel ashamed anymore. just throw it in the stock pot,
1: yeah, oh, and asparagus those woody asparagus stems they make wonderful asparagus stock, which makes the best result, though, so they have dinner halfway made, yeah, uh you know. <laughs> So it's this churn of the kitchen, using all parts. You know, we, we need to just remind people how to do it. You know, the recipes are not really recipes. They're more techniques. And so it's the kind of thing that gets lost easily. But um, I think that the kitchen ecosystem is um, part, maybe it's a little bit on the vanguard, but my guess is is that it it's a part of a much larger um, way of looking at cooking that home cooks Not only care about, but that... I mean, you care about it for... One could care about it for environmental reasons, but also it produces good flavor.
0: Good flavor.
1: Yeah, and it's an irony that virtuousness actually equals flavor, (laughs) which is sort of counterintuitive.
0: Funny about that. Well, um, maybe I will make a sign and put it in my kitchen that uh, uh, says scraps and peels and bones.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That is. You know, I love, I just taught a class in Chicago, and it was on, um, it had three aspects. It was on being a kitchen efficiency, and it was use the whole food, which would be, the, instead of buying chicken parts, which seems like it's more efficient for the home cook, but it's actually a rip-off because mm-hmm. you don't get the bones. And if you don't get the bones, then you can't make stock, which is dinner tomorrow night. So it's only efficient if every dinner is a discrete from-scratch experience versus an ongoing, continuous approach to preparing food. So use the whole food. That would mean when you get the radishes, get the tops. They're delicious. Get the carrots, get the tops. They're delicious. (laughs) And so, you know, get the fish, get the whole fish. So you have the bones. It doesn't take that much to pick. You know, it's easy to learn how to fillet fish. It takes a couple of times. You'll mangle it a few times, but then you got it forever.
0: Yes, yeah, I love I love how you say about crepes. That uh, your first crepe would probably be kind of lousy. Oh yeah. But as yeah. the as the pan heats up and you get it, then there'll be more and more beautiful. And it's like everything.
1: Exactly, it's a learning curve, and that's why I also really try to uh, encourage people to learn to make the stuff that they eat the most of anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you buy canned tomatoes frequently maybe you should give home canning tomatoes a whirl because every time you use those tomatoes in a recipe your dish is going to be qualitatively better same with anything condiments mayonnaise you buy a lot of mayonnaise why don't you try learning how to make it homemade because every time you use mayonnaise in a recipe it's going to taste that much better
0: much better eugenia it's it's been a real joy to be with you
1: thank you me too i really enjoyed the talk.
0: Good. and uh, I like to ask my speakers who become my friends, what would you like to say in closing?
1: Hmm. I think in terms of the kitchen ecosystem, which is really important and mm-hmm. a part of our everyday lives today, because we all eat, is use the whole foods, um, use the byproducts of cooking, the flavored waters and the rendered fats, and use the stuff at the bottom of the drawer, of the jar. You know, after the arti- marinated artichokes are eaten, and you've got that marinade in the bottom, that tastes as good as the artichokes. I guess it's thrift that this is the. Tr- I guess the uh, the true, but often elusive truth. So the ultimate, but often elusive truth of um, good cooking is values matter.
0: Hmm. Hmm. and that could be a whole other show (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much
1: thank you